0: How far would you go for God? How much would you give of yourself for Him? For example, if God asked you to be a doormat, would you do it? Do you know what I mean? If God commanded us to let people walk all over us, would you do it? Our answer can be quite telling. Are we willing to go that far? Now I'm not saying that our passage before us this morning asks us to be doormats. But would there be a problem if it did? Would that be too much for God to ask? What would be beyond God to ask of us? Whilst our passage this morning isn't a directive for doormats, what it asks of us is huge. Now I'll say this again because it merits repeating. This is not saying behave this way and you will be saved. It's saying, because you are saved by Jesus' blood, this is how you are to behave. This is how you are to live in line with all that God has done for you by sending his son to ransom us from death. So how are we to live in light of the fact that God has given everything for us? Well, Jesus has already said that our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees. And we've been seeing the past three weeks exactly what that looks like. So what does Jesus have for us now? Well, our first point is embrace injustices with open arms. Embrace injustices with open arms. What we have before us in that section there uh, between 38 and 42 is probably one of the best known sections of the whole Bible. Even people outside of church have generally heard of this section, so much that many of the things you see written here can be heard in the avenues and alleyways of Otley. Phrases like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. All these phrases have sort of passed into common usage, haven't they? People use them all the time. Now, of course, that last phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, isn't just here in Matthew. Matthew. Actually, we saw it last year in our favourite book, Leviticus. It was there uh, in the section uh, on, uh, uh, on laws in, in Leviticus. But there are also repetitions of that same idea and the same words uh, in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy as well. And it would seem that actually the phrase is older than even the time of Moses. We have Middle Eastern codes of law that are older And they used pretty much the same phrase with the same pieces of the body, the eye and the tooth. But wherever it was used, it was always used in this sense. The punishment should not exceed the crime. That's what it always meant. The punishment should not exceed the crime. In other words, the force of it is this. If you've only lost one eye, you can only take one eye. If you've only lost one tooth... You can only take one tooth. What it's saying is you can't kill someone for poking your eye out. Which when you think about it, that's sensible. It's a sensible law to have. And most cultures have this sense that the punishment should fit the crime. So even in the Old Testament, it was supposed to limit violence. It was supposed to make sure that nobody went beyond the bounds of what was fair. Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, sorry, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. But actually, even when you look at the original, the intention was to stop such an escalation. The idea was to stop things going further than they should do. To satisfy justice without stepping over the bounds into vengeance and blood vendettas. But whereas this was supposed to be a sin restrainer... It seems by the time of Jesus that actually it was used as an excuse for revenge and reprisals. It had become a charter for vengeance rather than a check on violence. You see, the law was never meant to justify revenge. It was supposed to bring justice so revenge wouldn't be needed. So what does Jesus do with this law in this context? Well, Jesus, again, takes us a million miles away from revenge and bitterness. He takes us, actually, in the exact opposite direction. So he uses some examples, doesn't he? You see it there uh, in verse, uh, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus is saying here, what would you do if someone slapped you across your face? Or if someone insulted you? Well the natural sort of human thing would be to hit them back, wouldn't it? To be ins- insulting them back. Give as good as you get, tit for tat. A slap on the right cheek in Jesus' day was an act of contempt as well as an act of violence. It was supposed to be a real insult to the person that you were doing it to, an affront to them. The human thing in those contexts is to do it back, isn't it? And you'd seem to be supported by eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've been the victim of injustice, time to get justice. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't hit them back. In fact, go the opposite way. Offer them your other cheek. You see, Jesus is actually going further than you'd expect here, isn't he? I think sometimes when I hear the phrase used in general usage, you know, turn the other cheek, people generally mean it, oh, let it go. It doesn't matter. Just, Just walk away. But what Jesus said is actually far more radical. He's not saying don't just do nothing. Sorry, don't do anything. Double negative. Something like that. Don't just walk away. Actively offer them the other cheek to slap. Accept the injury. Accept the injustice with open arms, if you like. So it's not just a case of not taking revenge. This is actively going the other way. Opening up yourself to more injury. It's a hog-off deal. You know, you get bog-off deals at the supermarket, buy one, get one free. It's like, hit one, get one free. That's what he's saying. But what he's doing is he's taking us a million miles of away from revenge he's taken us away from that idea that you should just get your own back I actually did this once um, so when I was at school I became a Christian when I was 12 and so I went through high school as a Christian I got quite badly bullied and there was an occasion when one of my bullies actually properly whacked me across my face and I had to decide what to do and this verse came to me I thought, well, do you know what, that's what the Bible says Turn the other cheek, so I said thank you. For a start, that got a bit of a uh, a weird response. And then I I literally turned around and offered him my other cheek to hit. He was in front of other people as well. It was a really surprising situation because he didn't know what to do. In the end, he actually walked away and said that I was weird, which is probably right. But he couldn't actually bring himself to hit me again on the other cheek. You see, actually, it's a sign of strength in a way, isn't it, when we can do something like that. It's not a sign of weakness. And that really weirded him out. That really got to him. Actually, he never hit me again, that guy. I can't guarantee that if you do that, it will happen. But it's not a sign of weakness there, is it? Actually, it's a sign of strength to be able to say, do you know what? Here's the other one. Because it shows that you can't be beaten. It shows that you're not just going to roll over. Now, as an aside here, this is not a justification for staying in an abusive relationship. Someone asked me last week whether divorce was permissible if one partner was being abusive. What I would say is that this verse is primarily about insult rather than repeated violence. I don't think the Bible would oblige you to stay in an abusive situation. Again, in those circumstances, divorce needn't be the first court of call I know relationships where violence has been involved, where actually the couple have been reconciled and violence has stopped. But it's not obliging someone to stay in an abusive relationship. If we use this as a justification for violence, to say you must stay, then in one sense we're no better than the Pharisees. What this is, though, is supposed to show the world that they cannot beat us, because we're not living for what they're living for. We're not living for their approval. We've already got God's approval. They can't beat us because we're not living by their rules. Actually, we're living by God's rules. And it also means that we are stronger than they think. So the Bible calls us to turn the other cheek. Now, Jesus gives other examples of the same sort of nature. Have a look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. This situation here is that somebody is literally suing you for the shirt off your back. That's how low this is going. It's not for your money. It's it's literally for your clothes. What does Jesus say in that situation? Jesus says, go the extra mantle. That's a posh word for coats. Makes it fit with go the extra mile, doesn't it? It worked in my head. Go the extra mantle. Give them your coat as well, in with the deal. Give them more than what they're suing you for. Now under Jewish law, no one was allowed to take your cloak. It was one of your sort of inalienable rights. Even if you gave it in pledge for a debt, they had to give you it back in the evening. It was sort of something that people used. If there was nothing else, they would use it for something to sleep in. You always had it to go back on. But Jesus says here, give it away. If they're suing you for something, give them something more. Now could you imagine what would happen if divorce settlements happened like this? I suppose that's the closest we get to this. You want the car? Take the house as well. You know, you, you want the, the vase? Well take the whole set of vases. It flies in the face of all that we feel is fair, but it fits with that going exactly the opposite direction to what the world would expect you to do. Going far away from that idea of tit for tat of revenge give them even more than they they want and Jesus goes on in verse 41 and if anyone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles now the situation here is that you've been accosted by a Roman soldier, I know that wouldn't generally happen in Otley in the 21st century but it would in Jesus' day you've been accosted by a Roman soldier and under Roman law any common person uh, could be grabbed by a Roman soldier and sort of used to carry things you were effectively forced into the army for, a, for an hour or so now there's been a tradition that you could only do that for one mile which would seem to fit here but actually there's no evidence in history for such a restriction but the principle stands the principle is still the same isn't it if they force you to go one mile go with them a second mile go with the extra mile now again this is not quite how we use it in our culture is it in this context, a person is being exploited, effectively. They're being forced to do something, and they're to go the extra mile. When we use it in our sort of common usage, it sort of means be extra nice to people, doesn't it? Now, you should be extra nice to people. I think the scriptures would support that. But that's not really what this is saying. This is saying, in the context of exploitation, better to be exploited than to take revenge. Revenge. Better to go the extra mile than to live in bitterness. You see, revenge would be, you know, you you find some circumstance where you're in power over that Roman soldier and you make them take something of yours and you make them carry it a mile. But this is actually carry his stuff even further. This is not eye for eye. This is accepting ill treatment from an enemy rather than seethed with resentment. This is going the extra mile and not grumbling, even when you don't have a choice. This is accepting unfairness with open arms. Now the next one that Jesus gives us breaks the pattern a little. Have a look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He's saying here, give to those who ask you to give. There's no longer that if situation, then do this. It's just a command. And it separates it then from the ones who are evil that we're not to resist in verse 39. It's not saying that all people who ask you for money are evil. But even in this situation, the response is still one of open-handedness and a willingness to go beyond what's expected. It's saying give to those who ask uh, from you. Now is this commanding that we give to every beggar that we pass pass on the street? I would argue no. Many uh, on uh, the streets of Britain suffer from crippling addictions. And actually as we give them money that fuels their own destruction. But then we need to think about how do we help those people? What do we do that goes above and beyond? Perhaps giving food to those people perhaps giving money to charities that support the poor and homeless. But I almost feel like that verse doesn't do, that, that That explanation doesn't do this verse justice. We need to think about how we can do that open-handedly. We need to think about how we can help those genuinely in need. But not just those that are genuinely in need. Giving to those we don't think deserve it as well. We don't want to... Um, and give to people who will destroy themselves with the money that we give them. But equally, we don't want to simply justify greed and stinginess. After all, are the Pharisees, how would they approach this? Well, they would probably say, well, I'll give to them as long as somewhere down the road they'll be able to give to me. You know, pound for pound, shekel for shekel, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But we're to give in a way that we don't expect in return. We're to give to those even if we don't think it will benefit us. So he's saying, give to those who ask. Be generous. Now you might be thinking with all this, well, that's all well and good, but isn't that the opposite of what the Old Testament said? All these things. Isn't Jesus putting this against eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Some have said that what we've got here is a contradiction. I've often uh, challenged people when they've said that, oh, the you know, you've had that conversation probably, haven't you? Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. So I normally say, well, can you give me one? At which point they, they look blank and sort of say they've not read the Bible. But if they ever, ever do give an answer, it tends to be this verse. This is the one they know. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth in the Old Testament, but then Jesus undoes that. But I want to say this is not a contradiction. It's a deepening of the original command. And both commands are going in the same direction. It's not that Jesus is saying, you know, eye for eye is that way and this is the other way actually St. Augustine said vengeance should not exceed the injury this is the beginning of peace but perfect peace is to have no wish at all for such vengeance he's commenting on this verse the first one was supposed to restrain violence like take it to zero if you like but this goes even further in that direction saying actually no don't even seek that, that what you're due if you like so it's not a contradiction at all Actually, it deepens that command. It takes it further into our heart, which fits with all the other commands that Jesus gives in this section. So we're to go even further than just sort of net zero. We're to go above and beyond what is expected. So that's our first point, embracing justices with open arms. And then secondly, embrace your enemies with open arms. Have a look at verse 33. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Now, the first part of that quote uh, is from an Old Testament book of law called Leviticus, again. Uh, And we saw, if you remember, that it formed a central peak. It's sort of the commands built up in the centre to this law about loving your neighbour as yourself. It was in a section of laws about caring for other people. And the idea of that law was to hold them to a very high moral standard in the face of all the pagan nations around them. That's that's what the laws there were, were given for. That's the first part. But the second part, hate your enemy, appears nowhere in the Old Testament. People have tried to say that it's inferred from passages of the nations around them, but nowhere does it actually say to hate them. It seems to be one of those extra bits that had been added to the law by the time of Jesus' day that people sort of took as almost being part of the original law. One of those extra lines that the Pharisees and the teacher of of the law had drawn. The command in Leviticus was supposed to be a radical call to love the people around you. But the Pharisees had turned it into an excuse to hate people. So what does Jesus say? Have a look at verse 44. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That's what Jesus says. Now, I don't know about you, but my first thought when I read this was, well, I don't have any enemies. You know, I'm not some mafia boss or some shady businessman. Equally, I'm not a fictional you know, superhero or detective that sort of got a nemesis uh, somewhere out there. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, what about those people that we were talking about in the last section? People who have insulted me, people who have hurt me physically or emotionally, people who have treated me unfairly, that might be at work, might be in the family, might be people at church even. Are there people that I don't speak to anymore, that I dread bumping into on the street because of something they said or did to me? I can think about people like that. Equally, I can think about people that I don't want to bump into because I've hurt them. So I know that that happens. Jesus says, love them. Jesus says, pray for them. And this is incredibly hard, isn't it? Incredibly. It goes against everything we want to think, it goes against our sense of fairness. This is why it still makes headlines when someone forgives someone for killing a family member, isn't it? It shows shockingly countercultural. cultural It gets reported as news. I'm thinking about Joe Pollard from Shipley a number of years ago, whose husband was brutally murdered while they were smuggling Bibles across the Iron Curtain, who forgave her husband's killers. I'm thinking about Elizabeth Elliot, who went as a missionary to the very tribe that murdered her husband, Jim Elliot. It can seem miraculous, can't it? The way that they can forgive in such an amazing way. It seems like it takes a miracle. But it can feel just as hard sometimes, can't it? For us to forgive others, to love them, to pray for them. Jesus even says to pray for those who are persecuting you. Those who are hurting you for your faith. If you want to know what we can pray, we can do no better than look at the words of Jesus himself. Who, when he was being crucified, cried, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There is someone who practices what they preach. Mm -hmm. But this can seem incredibly hard to do that, can't it? But Jesus gives us two solid reasons why we should do this. The first one is we should love our enemies because that is what God does. Have a look at verse 45. Love your enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. (coughs) Whilst it's true that God has a special saving love for some, he shows his loving kindness to all. When the sun rises (laughs) did it rise today? But when the sun rises, oh, there might be some flood jokes in here after all. When the sun rises, it rises for the just and the unjust. The rain, in in the right amounts, falls on the crops of the wonderful, loving, godly farmers, and on the crops of nasty, greedy, penny-pinching, godless farmers as well. God shows his love in that sense, indiscriminately. He isn't just nice to those who are nice to him, is he? And we know that as well because the Bible says that if we're Christians here this morning, we were once his enemies. Romans 5, 6 to 10. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheet. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's saying there, once we were enemies of God, But now we've been reconciled through Jesus and we're his friends. But he reconciled us while we were his enemies. If God did not love his enemies, there would be no one in heaven other than God. It's only because of God's love for his enemies that we can be saved, rescued, brought into relationship with him. If God didn't love his enemies, we'd all be doomed to hell. So God has shown such love to his enemies. So shouldn't we? If we have benefited from God's benevolence, then shouldn't we be kind to others? We're to be like our Heavenly Father. And if you want to know what that looks like as a human being, look at Jesus. Ask God to make you more like Jesus. If you want to know what that looks like, listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans. Romans twelve nineteen to 20 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink do you see here actually the new testament the bible calls us to love our enemies to practically care for our enemies why because God does and he's done it for us So that's the first reason we should love our enemies. The second reason we should love our enemies is that otherwise we're no different from the world around us. Have a look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Just love those who love you. Tax collectors do that. Dictators do that. Child murderers do that. Just give the time of day to the people that you like. Everybody does that. Even southerners do that. Even Lancastrians do that. Even reputedly the most impolite people in the world, the French, they do that as well, don't they? They greet people that they like. So how, why would you be proud of doing that? How does that make you any different from anybody else? If you just like the people who like you. The law was given to promote higher standards. To make you stand out. You don't stand out by blending in. Well that's what everybody else does. If our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees. Then it's no good if it's no better than the Gentiles. who don't even have God's law. Remember we said a few weeks ago, salt is to be salty. If we're not different from the world around us, then we won't make an impact on the world. We are to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We are to be salt and light in the world. Not aiming at average and what everybody else does. That really has been the whole point of this section, hasn't it? This section on the Sermon on the Mount, though, finishes with these words in verse 48. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What it's saying here is if we are going to be salt and light, what this whole section has been talking about, then it means that we're going to be, need to be like God. Now, that's not quite as scary as it first sounds. Perfect here mean, can mean mature or complete. Really, this is a paraphrase of that repeated phrase in Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. holy. We're to reflect God's moral goodness as we go about in our world. We're to become sons of our Heavenly Father. Now God is not a doormat. God is not a pushover. But when he became a man he did become a servant. Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that he's told his disciples that they were to do the same. They were to serve others. And this is all the same idea, isn't it? It's a reminder that our example in all of this is Jesus. Jesus loved his enemies. He laid down his life for them. Jesus served his enemies. He even washed the feet of Judas, didn't he? Jesus laid down his life for us. And Jesus was the strongest person who ever lived. Yet he chose to allow himself to suffer and be ill-treated. He loved his enemies to the fullest and made them his friends. And he gives us strength to live like he lived. So the question in the light of all of this is if this is all that God has done for us, what will we do for him? Is this too much to ask? Is this too much to tell us to do, to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus? Well, let's pray that he would give us the strength to do that this week and in the weeks and months ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we wouldn't be people who say that uh, the way you have called us to live is too much. But Father, we are aware that these are hard verses. And that, Father, these things are difficult for us as human beings, Father, to love our enemies, um, to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile. Father, we pray that, as Steve was talking about before with the batteries, Father, pray that as Jesus lives in us, he would give us strength by his spirit to live day by day for you, to make the sacrifices uh, in our lives that need to be made. And to love, as you have poured your love into our hearts by your spirit, to love others as that love overflows into the lives of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.